Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence. Let your word be our rule, your spirit our guide, and your glory our supreme concern through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. In 1989, among other world events, including the fall of the Berlin Wall, the International Basketball Federation voted to allow professional basketball players to play in the Olympics. I know, a profound moment. That would allow NBA players to represent the United States of America in the 1992 Olympics in Barcelona. This led to the assembling of 12 men, some of the greatest basketball players of all time. I see some of you nodding. The likes of Michael Jordan, Magic Johnson, Larry Bird. Some of you may not know some of those names. Of course, you know Michael Jordan from his baseball career, <laughs> or more likely from his sneakers, world famous made by Nike. But these 12 men would go on to dominate the competition in that Olympics and in the qualifying games, scoring over 100 points in all of their games and just really experiencing sure dominance, sheer dominance among their competition. This morning, we're going to see Jesus assemble 12 men himself. Now, the basketball team, those Olympic gold medalists, dubbed the dream team, the greatest combination of talent, some say in all sports ever put together. We'll see Jesus' 12 men. We'll see if they are a dream team. Um, and we'll also see how he empowers them and calls them, gives them a, miss a mission, and then what that looks like for us. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 10. We'll be looking at verses 1 to 15. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, there's one under the chair in, the, in, front, of, in front of you. It's on page 814. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like one, we've got free Bibles right in the back table there with a sign that says free Bibles. Please just go ahead and grab one of those. You don't have to ask anyone. They're free. They're for you. We'd love for you to have one. Last week, we looked at Matthew chapter 9. We've been progressively going through Matthew. And right at the end of Matthew chapter 9, Jesus looks out at the crowds and he sees them harassed and helpless, people with, like sheep without a shepherd. And then he turns to his disciples. He says this, he says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. We're going to see this morning Jesus fulfilling that prayer. In fact, his very disciples are going to begin to fulfill that prayer. Join with me again. We're in Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 to 15. Read with me. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First Simon, who's called Peter, Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, 
James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed them. These 12 Jesus sent out instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You have received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or staff for the laborer deserves his food. In whatever town or village you enter, find out who's worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, Shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Amen. We're going to see this morning as we look through this text, we're going to see how Jesus empowers his people to continue his kingdom work and that our response to that is everything. We're going to see Jesus empower his people to continue his work. And our response to that is everything. So Jesus, we see, calls together his 12 disciples in verse 1. He's giving them authority. Jesus is empowering these disciples. How is he, how is he doing that? Well, it says it right there, right? Gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and affliction. If that phrase, every disease and every affliction, sounds familiar, you might be remembering last week. Mike read them. They're right from Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. And Jesus went throughout the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Jesus is taking the, 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 the power and authority that he has, which is incredible. He's able to heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons. He has that authority, and we've been seeing him using it throughout Matthew chapter 8 and chapter 9, powerfully. And now it tells us so much about Jesus, right? It's not just that he has this power, that he has this authority, he is also able to bestow it onto others, right? I mean, that, that's amazing. That, 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 that points to who Jesus is. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. It's amazing. So he's doing that. He's empowering his disciples in this way. We'll see later on, he also is empowering them to proclaim the same thing that he is, the good news of the kingdom. But let's look at these men, this dream team that Jesus has assembled, right? We have 12 men. They're all broken up into, 
into the ands, you'll note, in between names, six teams, they're going out. It says, first, Simon, who was called Peter. He's the first among them, the first really among equals. He's maybe the Michael Jordan of this team, right? But we, if you know anything about Peter, he's the most famous of disciples. Well, yep, the most famous. And what is partly he's famous for? He's always quick to give an answer, which is often wrong. And he will also go on to deny Jesus when Jesus needs a friend and a follower the most in his moment where he's been arrested and betrayed. What does Peter do? Peter denies even knowing him. That's the first of the dream team. That's Peter. And his brother, Andrew, we know him, Peter. We know Andrew and James and John. We actually don't know much about them from Mark's gospel. We know that there are fishermen, same with Peter. These four fishermen that Jesus called. Jesus said, I will, he's calling them as fishermen. He said, I will make you fishers of men. He's doing that right now. But if I were to assemble a group of people to go and, and spread the word, and my message that I had, I, I probably wouldn't go down to the docks, right? And go to Boston Harbor and say, let me find four fishermen, see if they can join in and do it. These are ordinary men. They're not schooled. They knew how to fish well, you think, but they're ordinary. James and John, they're going to try to find out who, who of them can be at Jesus' right hand and his left hand. They're in it for some glory. Give me a little bit of power. I, I want to be with you in your kingdom, right? Matthew, the tax collector. We saw Matthew get called. Jesus told him to follow him. He's the author of this gospel. But he's a tax collector. Tax collectors are, are, are Jewish people working for the Roman overlords who are collecting taxes on their behalf and oftentimes increasing the value of those taxes so they can skim a little of the top for themselves to line their pockets. These aren't good people. They're ordinary people. Six of them Matthew only mentions here. It's the only time he mentions them. That's how, that's how important, in some sense, he thinks they are. They just get a mention here. And of course, last on this list, and most infamous of all of them, Judas Iscariot, who would betray Jesus. These, this is the team that Jesus has assembled for his mission that he's empowering. Deniers, doubters, betrayers. That should be encouraging to us. Jesus calls us to to follow him because we're ordinary people. We're students and teachers, accountants, software engineers. We're just living our lives, ordinary people. Jesus too calls to us, wants to empower us to continue his work. We'll see more as to what that looks like. It's ordinary people. Jesus calls and empowers Let's continue on. Let's look at the, the mission that Jesus is giving this dream team. Verse 5 says, These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now this seems strange, because actually Christians were known, one of the things we're known for is making sure that Jesus is known as far away and as near as possible. 
Missionaries are sent to every corner of the globe to share the good news of who Jesus is, to proclaim that news of the kingdom. So why then, when Jesus is sending out his first disciples, these 12 apostles, these ones who have been sent and empowered, why is he giving them just this limited scope to the house of Israel? And the house of Israel there is, is, a, is, a, is really just a name for the entire na- the, the nation and people of Israel, the Jewish people. Israel is another name for Jacob, one of the patriarchs of the people that out of him, his 12 children would form the 12 tribes of Israel. Goes all this Israel, the lost sheep, that's the, think of that crowd that Jesus is looking out on, harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. You know what sheep without a shepherd are? They're lost. They're lost. They're throwing off. They're there. But what, why is Jesus just going to these Jewish sheep, to that nation? Well, if, if, we, if, we've read our, if we've read our Bibles, if we've read the Old Testament, it really in some ways should be no surprise. Because God has been very patiently and graciously working with, with the house of Israel, with his chosen people for hundreds of really thousands of years leading up to this moment. Ever since way back to the time of Abraham, you can read in Genesis 12, God called him and God made promises to him that he would give them a land, that he would provide for them, that he would multiply them like stars in the sky. It's the promises God is making to his people. He also promised them that he would use them to bless the nations. Well, guess what? That work is still going on. It's going on right here. Jesus is the fulfillment of that work, and it's coming near, very near, to what's going to happen. And that's why Jesus is still working, again, patiently and graciously with his, with his people. The time is near where that is going to be a mission to all people. And we'll see that it hinges on one point, and we'll see it later. But for now... The message of the kingdom is for his people, for the chosen people of Israel. So he's sending them to do that. And what, is he supposed to, what are they supposed to do? Verse 7, and proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There are two things they're supposed to be doing. This first one is to share the good news of the kingdom. It's at hand. This is actually the very thing that Jesus has been doing. We just saw that. In chapter 9, in chapter 4 in Matthew, at the beginning of his mission, he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. What does that mean? Well, what, what is the most important thing about a kingdom? What's the most important thing about a kingdom? You could probably go downstairs. The children might be able to answer this for us, right? The most important thing about a kingdom is the king. It's what defines a kingdom, Right? If you don't have a king, you don't have a kingdom. But who is the king? Jesus is the king. His kingdom is in breaking. It's why he's come to bring his kingdom. It's going to work out differently than they thought it would, than really everyone at the time thought it would. But he is the king, and he is bringing his kingdom, and he has come near so that that will happen. So call. Go to them. Call them to me. To Jesus. Continues on. Verse 8. The first part is to proclaim. In verse 8, 
heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. Very thing Jesus has empowered these 12 men to do, his, his apostles, go out and continue to work the miracles that Jesus has been working. Is it to, to show the power of the kingdom that's in breaking into the world, the power that Jesus has. His, his apostles, his envoys share that power. And that power is authenticating their message, just like it's authenticating who Jesus is and what he's doing. There can continue that miraculous work. It's pretty incredible. It's what they're doing. So they're going out, they're proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, that it's near, calling people to turn to that, to repent, to turn to Jesus as king. And they're showing his power, power he has given them to, dis, to, to, to authenticate him as king, them as his apostles. Continues on, you receive without pain, give without pay. That seems to come out of nowhere, right? He's just saying, pro proclaim the gospel, heal people. Then what's this? You receive without pain, give without pay, right? Well, they have, been, they have received the power to heal people, to raise the dead, to proclaim the gospel. That's, that's, those are pretty big things. A lot of people, even today, would pay a lot of money to receive those gifts. We want to see people healed, to see the dead brought back to life. But they didn't pay for it. Jesus gave it to them, was gracious to them, empowering them in that way. And so just as he's given it to them, without them paying for it, they're not to go out and then charge people for it, right? Now maybe, maybe the, the, you would just go out and heal people and then people would just provide you with, with some money or some food to kind of sustain your continuing to do that. Or maybe some crafty ones among them, maybe Judas, would say, oh, would you like your son raised from the grid? $10,000. I can do that. We can bring him back. We'll make that happen for you. Oh, do you, do you have leprosy and you're ostracized from the community? $5,000. We'll make it go away. Give to us. We can give to you. Sadly, today, there are many out there who, who still <laughs> proclaim to, 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 do, to do miracles and proclaim the gospel and will take money from people for their own good, for their own glory, not for that of Jesus. So Jesus is saying, don't do that. This isn't the point of why you're going. It's not to receive money. It's not to enrich yourselves. It's not even to pay for this ministry. It's to give. It's free. It's a free gift. It's grace. So, if you're like me and you're thinking you're going out and no one is going to pay you for anything you're doing, you're just going out there, then I, me as a good Boy Scout, I'm thinking I've got to be prepared for this, right? You've got to take your money belt, put some gold coins in there, some silver coins, some copper coins. You've got to load up. You've got <laughs> you to grab a couple tunics because you, you might have to sleep outside, so you want to stay warm. Right? You're going to grab your, your bag of provisions, some dried food, things that you'll have with you as you, as you go on this adventure together. Right? You're going to make sure you've got great sandals. You've got to have shoes. I've got plantar fasciitis. I need to have really good shoes and some insoles. You've got to have those. 
right? You got to have your, your walking staff because you're going to be walking through who knows what terrain. You got to be prepared, right? So do we? Well, Jesus, well, I don't know if he was a Boy Scout. He wasn't. They didn't exist at the time. But I think he has a different understanding of preparedness because this is what he said in verse 9, right? Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or or two tunics or sandals or staff. Okay, okay. So nothing, (laughs) right? Don't go with anything. Don't get paid by anyone and don't have anything on your journey. Okay. This, this, doesn't, this is off to a good start here, right? This is, what, are, what are we doing? But Jesus gives a reason. And he says, for the laborer deserves his food. For the laborer deserves his food. It was a custom at the time when you're bringing on hired labor to collect your harvest when you're hiring your laborers that are going to go out in the harvest. Of course, you're going to pay them a wage for their work. But also part of that is an assumed right that you're going to also give them food. You're going to support them as they do that. They don't have to bring their little brown bag with their, their sandwich in it. You know, they're gonna, you're going to also provide for them. Well, so too is the Lord of the harvest going to provide for his laborers that he calls into his fields. And how is he gonna do that? We see, he tells, he tells them right now. He says in verse 11, In whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. So we'll see this term worthy a couple times below. And for us, we have a certain view of worthiness, right? There's certain people that are are worthy. They're maybe very morally upright. They're just great people. You know, they do wonderful things. Maybe even we say they have a great relationship with God. They're a worthy person. This isn't exactly what this term means here. Commentators agree generally that it's not about the person's sort of moral worthiness, but more about that they're, they're hospitable people. They are the kind of people who open their, open their homes up to, to, to people who are traveling to their town who need a place to stay. It's a very foreign concept for us because if people come into town, they usually stay at a hotel, maybe now an Airbnb, right? But at the time, you can't go to the, the Hilton, right? There's, of course, no Airbnb. You, can't, you don't have the app to look that up, you know? You, you're, you're going to these towns that have, would just have homes, right? Not even nice homes like we have, just homes. People stay, live with their children. But there's hospitality there, and people would, would, would do that. It was a very hospitable culture at the time, would let people in. Of course, not everyone's willing to do that, right? Some people are, are afraid or, or whatever. But you have these people that, you know, they're worthy in the sense that they're hospitable. They're welcoming. They may even be open to the message of the kingdom. They might want to talk more, receive that. These are the worthy people. And then stay with them. Jump, set up your time in that town. Stay at the whole time with them. Others may invite you to their homes. Just stick with the people that you're with. He goes on. He gives them sort of a description of how they are to conduct themselves in the, the, the homes here. He says, as you, as you enter the house, verse 12, greet it. Well, that for us means you I mean, enter it. You say hello to the people. Hey, guys. 
Hey, everyone. I'm here. I'm Peter. This is my brother, Andrew. I know. We're not the best. We maybe smell like fish, but we're good guys. We'll stay with you. Right? Greet them. Well, that's not exactly what it means. And the, the common greeting of, of the day would be peace, peace to you. It's almost a, a blessing. You're, you're saying, you know, peace to be upon you. You would have peace. And so when they're coming in, you say when you come into their house, say that. Peace, peace be on your house. Peace be with you. They would be having peace. They would have a blessing. You know, ongoing, but particularly while the, while the disciples are, are staying there, enjoying their hospitality. Right? So that's what he says. Greet them. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. So if, it's, if they are receptive of you and, and they put you up, yeah, there'd be peace there. You'd bless them. But if they're not as hospitable as you thought they were, right? If they're not worthy in that way, well then, leave. D.A. Carson talks about this, or he talks about New Testament scholar D.A. Carson. When you leave the house, when, when you're in the house and you're blessing, leaving is not upon it anymore. You're basically leaving. You're removing the peace that you're bringing to that home, the blessing that your presence is there, that you're going to keep on going. Leave, right? When you discover they're not the people that you thought they were. Pretty straightforward. Find the most hospitable people in that town. Stay with them. Be with them. Pray for them. Bless them. If they're not that, find another home. So this is the mission that Jesus is giving these 12 men. And you say, well, how does that possibly relate to me? How, how, how does this have anything to do with me? Certainly, we're, we're not just supposed to be limited to, the, to the, the, the house of Israel, the Jewish people. We're not all supposed to hop on flights right now to Jerusalem or Tel Aviv, right? Well, our, our mission is some way the same and in some way different because we stand on the other side of the most wondrous event in all of history. We stand on the other side of that event. And what is that event, right? That, that event is Jesus' work, his final work. Jesus came to the lost sheep of Israel. John tells us they rejected him. Where does Jesus end up? He ends up broken and bloody on a cross. Not for what he's done. He's lived a perfect, sinless life as a son of God. But he's going there willingly. That's why he came, to die for us, for you, for me, for this broken band of disciples. For all, for those lost sheep he is giving his life. He's dying a terrible death on the cross. Horrible. Denied by his closest friends. Betrayed by another one of his closest friends. In agony. Forsaking. Taking on our guilt. Our shame. For our sins on himself. Of course we know that's not the end of the story. That doesn't sound like the most wondrous event in all of history. No, that happens three days later. Jesus rises from the grave, alive, conquering sin and death, and winning for all who would trust in him forgiveness. 
grace, eternal life. That's this moment that's going to change these men. It's going to change the nature of that mission forever. Jesus' death for us, his glorious resurrection from the grave. We see at the end of Matthew, Jesus is going to call now 11 men. Judas has betrayed him. No longer an apostle. Sad. He's going to call them. He's now resurrected from the grave. Gloriously alive. He calls them together again. And he gives them another mission. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. And I am with you until the end of the age. You see that, you see that mission? Jesus still has the authority, all right? He's just proved it most powerfully, rising again from the grave. The authority God has given to him. And he's sending them again on a mission. Make disciples of all the nations. And that call that is on them is a call that is on us still to this day. The beginning of Matthew, Jesus lists, I mean, Matthew lists a bunch of names called the genealogy. It's Jesus' history, where he came from, who his, you know, who his parents were and the grandparents and great-grandparents, all the, all the way back. Connecting him to the whole of the history of Israel, through Abraham, through David, the, the king of Israel, all the way. Jesus gives us this list of names here, these 12 men. Well, now 11 men. That's the, the, these are, in a sense, no, in a very real way, God's children. This is the genealogy after Jesus. These, these men, his other disciples, other men and women who go out and proclaim the good news of Jesus and other men and women would hear the message of the kingdom and they would say, Jesus is worthy to be trusted. I will trust him. I will too follow him. And that's how any of us are in this room right now. The spread of, of that throughout history of ordinary men, ordinary women, saying, do you know who Jesus is? Do you know what Jesus has done? Do you know the, the hope, the life you can have in his name? Another thread added on. They say, I didn't know who he was. Now I do, and I want to follow him. They move on. They connect. Even after this, or it's the same time period, Jesus is risen from the grave and he, with his disciples. And they ask him, and they say, Jesus, are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Are you going to do that? Because we've been going out and preaching to the lost sheep of Israel, the house of Israel. Are you now going to establish your kingdom? Are you, gonna go, are you going to now go to Jerusalem? Are you going to kick out those Roman interlopers, the false kings they've set up? Are you going to be... Restore that kingdom to Israel. And Jesus says, wait. I'm going to send you power from above. 
I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit, so you're going to, so you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Jesus is giving them the mission to make disciples, and he is going to empower them by his Holy Spirit to do that. And he still empowers people today, so he gives us his Holy Spirit. So that same Peter who's going to deny Jesus three times is just a mess of a man. Holy Spirit is going to come on him. He's going to preach. He's going to lead his church. The very first time the Holy Spirit comes on God's people, they preach. 3,000 people decide to follow Jesus. That's amazing. That's not their work. They're ordinary men. That is the work of God's empowering through his Holy Spirit. And that spirit that was in Peter then is in us today if we trust in Jesus. It's amazing. God empowers, Jesus empowers his people to continue his work. Let's look at verse 14. We're not quite done yet. It says, and if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. It's telling them dust, dust, brush off the dust of your feet, be on your feet or get caught on your cloak as you're kicking up the dust. This was a, a, a sign and by, by people, Jewish people during that time, at times, when they would go into a Gentile land, a non-Jewish land, a pagan land, and they're coming back, and it's, they're, they're doing it because this is not, these are not God's people, and they don't want to even be associated to them with their dust, right? It's, 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 a, it's a really powerful image if you think about it. If someone came to your house, right, and you they came, you had a good time, and then suddenly something went wrong, and they leave, and, and as they're leaving, they're like, oh, dust, cat hair, dog hair, I don't, none of what was you do I want associated with me. It's this complete separation. And in fact, in this Jewish culture at the time, it's not just saying separating from you, it's actually saying identifying them as Gentiles, as people who are not Jewish, who are not part of God's people, who are not part of the promises. It's really an act of judgment, right? And Jesus follows that up, confirming the very thing. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on that day than for Sodom and Gomorrah. You probably know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's, it's famous in a sense because, because of, of what happens and how terrible it is. You can read about it in, in Genesis chapter 18 and 19. But God brings judgment on those, on those towns, on that area because of how their wickedness and what they do what they were going to do, trying to do, rains fire and sulfur, destroys them. A terrible thing, an act of judgment by God. And he's saying, that's what it's going to be like. It's going to be even worse for you on that day, for these people. And why? Why for God's, these who are God's chosen people, who are heirs to the promises of God, whose father is Abraham. 
Why? Because they are objecting Jesus. Because how we respond to Jesus is everything. You can have all the credentials you want, all of them. But if you are not responding to Jesus as king, that is everything. That is either knowing his love and grace and eternal life if you turn to him, or it's facing judgment. He, he is, is that defining thing in the world. Not anything else, not how good we are, but Jesus, how we will respond to him. If you are a Christian this morning, if you have responded positively to Jesus, if you have trusted in him, say, Jesus, you are who you say that you are. You have done what you say you have done, what your word says you have done. I want to follow you with my life. How will you continue to respond to his call, that call to spread the good news of his kingdom near and far? How will you do that? If you are not a Christian, if you have not trusted in Jesus, I would invite you this morning to do that because how we respond to him is everything. Let you take a few moments to consider those things, even to ask God to pray, Lord, I want to turn to Jesus. Take a moment now and then I'll pray and then we will receive the Lord's Supper together proclaiming Jesus' work until he comes.